I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. So today I am joined by a guest I have been looking forward to interviewing and waiting and biding my time to invite her because Jean Callanan is an international businesswoman and leader who I met through a Cambridge course I was tutoring and on which she stood out as somebody on the course, but someone I really wanted to have a good conversation with. So I waited the appropriate amount of time after the course had finished and then approached her and said, Jean, could I interview you? Because I'm, I'm kind of a fan, to be fair. Uh, but just to go over her illustrious biography, Jean spent much of her career in corporate life, honing her strategic thinking and understanding of the business world, working in roles like senior marketing executive and executive director in Unilever, Waterford Crystal, and Guinness Ireland, both within Ireland and internationally. She's lived and worked in the UK, Sweden, Germany, Italy, and Argentina. She was global brand manager of the Unilever flagship brand Magnum. So if you know Magnum, it's ice cream. I mean, what a happy brand, right? And she's also experienced in developing marketing strategies and building and growing brands. So she cut her teeth and became quite high level in that big corporate world. But in recent years, she founded Momenta Hub, a strategic thinking consultancy based on her passionately held belief that enormous value can be added to a business through strategic clarity in order to build momentum. She loves the variety of her clients, which include commercial, like multinationals to startups, state, public sector, and not-for-profit, both in Ireland and internationally. Jean's range of experience and interests are underpinned by a passion to do good in the world and connect leaders and normal everyday people with the things that matter, like tough questions, some of the things we'll be talking about, transformation, and inspiration. So that includes things like working with author Lorna Byrne on her journey from being an unknown woman with an idea and a great story to tell to an international best-selling author with more than a million readers in 50 countries with a book translated into 30 languages. And we'll get into that a little bit later. So two of her books became Sunday Times number one bestsellers in their first week of publication, which is outstanding. And Jean basically helped her to find her voice and her platform and ended up having her feature on BBC Radio and Television, The Telegraph, The Economist, CNN, etc. So a little bit of seemingly a departure, but that is an interesting piece of Jean's story. Some of her particularly rewarding work has included bringing Sunni and Shia Muslim leaders together in the U.S. to help bridge understanding, bringing Nobel Prize winner Betty Williams, who was a Joint Peace Prize winner in 1976, for her work bringing Protestants and Catholic women together in Northern Ireland, and she's also a board member of the Irish Seafood Development Board. And I'm not even going to attempt to say that in Gaelic, <laughs> but she's also chair of the Irish Hospice Foundation. And I love how the Irish Hospice Foundation describes itself. They say, every death matters and we only have one chance to get it right. We are working to ensure the best end of life and bereavement care for all, from advocacy and education to our vital services like Nurses for Night Care and our bereavement support line. We believe in the importance of dying well and grieving well wherever 
the place. So obviously, death and dying is a very uncomfortable conversation for a lot of people, and we are definitely going to dive into that because Jean plays a key role in helping to facilitate those conversations in a policy context, in an everyday context, and also in a really personal way. So I can't I can't wait to get to that part of the conversation. But Jean, thank you for being here today. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's a great pleasure to be with you, Betsy, and thank you very much for that lovely introduction. See, it wasn't as uncomfortable as we were afraid it would be, right? It's just you. (laughs) So you know, because you listen to the podcast, I always ask this question just to kick things off. What is an uncomfortable moment that's changed your life, that's shaped who you are and what you do in the world? I think, Betsy, the one I would have to choose was when I was in my early 40s and I made the decision to leave the corporate world. And I basically took off the armor the the corporate uniform I was wearing. Uh, And I also left behind the glamour of living in an exotic city and doing lots of travel. And I came back to Ireland and I really didn't know who I was. Um, I couldn't describe myself to others, but much more seriously, I didn't know who I was for myself. And that was profoundly discomforting. Wow. And and then what? <laughs> How did that shape you into Jean Kellen and now? Fast forwarding to your work with the Irish Hospice Foundation, your work as a leader and speaker and advisor. How did that discomfort lead to this? I'd love to say I was a quick learner, but I wasn't. The first time it happened when I left Unilever in, in Argentina, I really didn't know what to do with myself. I, I knew I wasn't happy. So I left. I had that much wisdom, but really I had very little self-awareness and Mm. I had done very little independent thinking. Uh, And so about six months into that, somebody came and said, here's an interesting job, you know, in a big company, a big title. Uh, Why don't you, why don't you come on board? We'd really like you. Um, And for want of anything better, I said yes, which is the very, very worst reason Um, (laughs) and nine months into that job, I was very clear I shouldn't be there. uh, And I walked then. So like quite a lot of people, I think in transition, I had to have a couple of goes at it. My Mm. second go was much more successful. Thanks to Findhorn in Scotland, because I took myself off to do two courses in Findhorn. And for those of you who don't know it, Findhorn is a sustainable village in uh, in Scotland. It's a mixture of sustainability and uh, spirituality. It was set mm. up in the late 50s and it was the original place where they spoke to the cabbages and the cabbages grew really big. So it was very, very <laughs> famous in the 1960s. Um, yeah. And I went and did two workshops there and I fell in love with the place. And I forgot to come home. So basically, Mm. I spent five months there, never traveling more than five miles out out from where I was living, working a couple of shifts in the kitchen where I refused to take responsibility for even taking something out of the oven. I, who had been doing big, responsible job, controlling big budgets, would not even agreed to take something out of the budget. I became completely responsible, responsibility phobic. And Mm. it served me, it just held me and allowed me to come into myself. 
Wow. I That's a really interesting point about just being like, nope, I am not doing anything related to how I used to be for a while, almost. And Findhorn, for those of you who don't know Findhorn, or maybe you do, it's kind of a rite of passage. So many of our contemporaries or my friends have spent time in Findhorn, and it's just this really special place where you can kind of just explore yourself and anything and how things fit together, right? And just be held mm. there. And when I say spirituality, it is non-denominational. So mm. pretty well anything goes, but there would be quite a lot of meditation, mindfulness, uh, a lot of connection with nature and just a really mm. a wonderful people. Speaking to the cabbages. Yeah, but I loved what you said about, well, last year was that for me in a lot of ways, or when I've left roles that I had a couple that weren't very happy and just... Yeah, you just want to retire for a bit. You just kind of want to step back and not be defined by how big your budget is or how big your team is or the exhaustion of carrying that finally finally got to you. So you needed that rest. It's hard to find places where you can do that, particularly if you don't know that's what you need to, to do. So I really did feel that Fintorn cradled me and I felt very safe and very allowed to just come out of myself there or into myself. Ah, that's a really interesting. Yeah. So discomfort kind of led you there and then you found comfort and what made you leave and what happened after you left? It sounds like it was a birth into something new. I would have stayed there. I would peacefully have stayed there, but it came to Christmas and I had always, I come from a big family in Ireland. Christmas is important. Wherever I was based in the world, I had always come home from Christmas. And I'll be honest, I knew if I didn't come home, then they'd they'd decide I had been, you know, taken over by a cult or something and would have been sending people in to rescue me. So I came home (laughs) and I then sort of realized I, I, I left everything there. I was going back, but I then realized that actually it wasn't where I was supposed to be. And that was discomfort again, because I had found somewhere Mm -hmm. I felt comfortable. So I spent several months uncomfortable, but knowing Fintorn really wasn't the right place, although there was no technical reason I couldn't be there. There was no money issue. There was no nothing, but my instincts were now becoming more honed. And they were saying, no, it's not the right place. And then a wonderful mentor of mine said to me, what is it you would really like to do? And I told her the things I was really good at and what I wanted to do. And I said, I only want to work three days a week. I don't want to do any routine administration work. I'm happy to lead a team, but I am not happy to man man to do the personnel management part of it. And um, very interesting coaching conversation. And at 8.30 the following Monday morning, she rang me and she said, I've just discussed the job you specced out last week with our board and we would like you to offer offer you that position. And it was RTE, which is the Irish equivalent of the BBC. So I went in, she was head of corporate affairs. So I went in to, to work to her in this amazing job. And it was, I suppose, the first time I really saw that if you are clear about what you want, and you make it clear, things will come to you. The universe will provide. I don't quite know what what vocabulary we want to use here, but I have learned that when you get clarity, things happen. 
When you get clarity, you can write the job description out loud. It's not terribly woo-woo, to be honest. If anybody's uncomfortable with that, you basically just told somebody the job description you wanted, and she decided she wanted to give you that job. And that is how it works. And that is how manifestation works, more or less. It's just being very clear on what you want, sort of breaking it out of the spiritual realm. Oh, I love that. We hadn't gotten to that story in our pre-chat. We had a really good pre-chat, so I've got loads of notes, but that's a new story. There are so many. So then you worked there for a bit. So I worked there How did- for a bit, and then different clients started to come towards me. So I worked with a with a variety of different clients. But one of the things that I've always loved about what I do is I tend to become like an internal consultant. So I become the, the go-to person within that organization. I become a thinking partner. And I love mm-hmm. that because it means you don't always have that that beginning phase when you are learning, you are able to deliver more added value. And I love the way you work with one person in an organization and then somebody else comes and says to you, can we talk to you about this? And you're getting a different dimension and you're able to layer your learnings. Because one of the things I found as I get older is that you're layering learnings up. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. learnings of having worked in different countries and different cultures and different organizations, but different sizes. And all that layering adds enormous wisdom. Um, And I'm finally starting to feel comfortable with claiming the word wisdom, Um, Mm. but not too comfortable. Not too comfortable, (laughs) actually, when I think about it. Well, you'll get there. You'll get there. Because you, I know you talked about before when we had a chat about how being vulnerable allows other people to be vulnerable. So even saying that you're really uncomfortable claiming wisdom, which I would say you clearly have, you know, what does that what does that allow other people to bring out? Things that they're good at, mm. things that that maybe they aren't acknowledging that they really bring to the world. Because I know you left corporate life not even realizing you were burned out. And then looking back now and the way you work now, where you are that internal trusted pair of hands, sort of internal, external, how different is life now and how different is it from that burned out state and why? Well, I I did realize that it was me who was the workaholic, not the fault of the job. Mm-hmm. And that I still have that tendency and I have to watch it because I don't enjoy my work if I cram too much of it in. So I actually have to allow myself time And one of the gifts of COVID was actually time. So I was able to sit, some of my clients continued, some of them disappeared. Uh, But I found I was able to give myself from sort of seven in the morning until 11 o'clock, block it in my diary and take it as thinking time. And it allowed me to go much deeper into a whole load of issues that have been on my mind Things like climate change, like sustainability, like that changing role of business away from just being about profit or delivering um, value to the shareholders. Uh, And that's where we met on that wonderful Mm -hmm. Cambridge Institute for Sustainable Leadership course, which uh, I got so much out of uh, because I got so much encouragement about the interesting things that were going on at the moment. And a lot has changed. And there's a lot to be hopeful. There's a lot to be hopeful there. But you don't see it in the mainstream business press unless you go looking. And so that course really helped to guide me on where to look and who to follow. Mm. And uh, 
lots of that, which was really valuable. Oh, yeah. And in those forums with sort of all those classmates in amazing professions around the world. So the course is Communicating for Influence and Impact, which you might not know how powerful it is just based on the title. But yeah, it's it's all about how do we communicate effectively and connect effectively and leverage the power that we have access to through our networks or relationships or it's yeah it is a really beautiful course I'm, I'm so glad we met on it I'm so glad you decided to do that out of the quietness of COVID you ended mm. up on this course and here we are yeah because um you've done some interesting things you've worked with Lorna uh which it sounded like when you we talked about it, it was sort of out of left field for you. It wasn't something you'd really thought you would end up doing. How did you end up working with this author who sees angels? Yeah, so this is this is a slightly strange one. And we did talk about that, you know, there is a degree of discomfort in this, but I need to own it because I mm. actually spent seven years working with this incredible woman. Um, so Lorna Byrne sees angels and she sees them physically. And she has done since she was a child. And she describes them very vividly. And somebody brought me to see her shortly after I'd come back from Findhorn. And um, when I met her, I knew she was for for real, um, but I didn't think she had anything to do with me. But her young daughter had come and sat beside me when uh, I was waiting to go in and see see her. I'd gone with this friend who was a journalist. And um, Aideen was, I would say, about five at the time. And she told me all about how her daddy had just died. And she told me about her older brothers and sisters. And when I was leaving Lorna, I said to her, look, here's my business card because Perhaps I can help one of your older children because I I knew of her circumstances. And she looked at me and she said, well, perhaps you'll help me write my book. And I said, I know nothing about books. You've got the wrong person. The other person is the journalist. She's the one you need to ask. Um, Now, Lorna has subsequently written about how she was told I was going to come uh, and that this had been going on for a while. And then uh, she was told that morning that the person was going to come, but she didn't quite know which one of us it was going to be. Um, So about a year later, about a year later, she said she rang me one day and she said, could we have lunch? And I said, funny, I was supposed to have a meeting, but it's just been cancelled. But yes, we can. So we had lunch and she asked me again, would I help her? So I said, yes. Now, where did that come from? I don't know. Um, And I said she could have one day pro bono a week. So for, and this wasn't an easy ask because Lorna has severe dyslexia. So she doesn't read and write. I always had a secretary. Shows how you know, like I oh, sure yeah. keyboard, but I am not a natural typist. And Lorna lived a uh, hundred kilometers away from me, so every Thursday I used to get up very early, drive to her home, uh, sit with the laptop, and write down the things she was saying. Sometimes she would have recorded them, or sometimes um, we uh, we would chat, and I would write down. And then one day I brought the Writers and Artists Yearbook with me and she said, she opened it and she said, at the page with Random House, and she said, they will publish it. And I look at it and I go, great, no unsolicited manuscripts, you know, one of the biggest publishers in the world. (laughs) How do you expect that to happen? And she said, keep listening because you will meet somebody. And sure enough, about 
two months later, I was out at a dinner with somebody I had known from Italy. There was somebody else at the table who was talking about a book they were writing. And my friend from Italy said, oh, you should talk to such and such a person who's a literary agent and a friend of mine. And at the end, I asked, would that literary agent be interested in um, uh, in a book about angels? And he said, no, but my friend Mark Booth, who's a senior editor in Random House, would be fascinated. <laughs> and within two days, within two days, we were in contact with um, with Mark and with Random House. But it all sounds like it's really easy, and and there was an awful lot of synchronicity and an awful lot of help mm. with the angels. But I'll tell you, there was an enormous amount of hard work as well. <laughs> I can imagine, uh, and it took a long and it took a long time. But eventually, uh, and it was the mixture of her incredible story and the way it resonated with people. Mm. Um, very simple, but very heartfelt and a very, very genuine woman. And um, and my, my international marketing skills and the fusing of the two together worked really well. Oh, wow. I love that because it's a good reminder to anyone who's thinking, I'm not in the career I want to be in, but you're gaining skills that will serve you in wherever you need to end up. So I love that, that you put your high level, super high level corporate marketing skills to work for a book on angels. That's pretty incredible. Well, I, I still remember uh, having a session with the uh, marketing director of Random House and the editor. And I said, I have this plan. And it was a written plan. I have this plan to get Lorna's next book into the Sunday Times uh, top 10 uh, at the, in the first week of publication. And I remember the marketing director looking at me going, poor Jean, she's delusional. Uh, not only did I get it into the top 10, but we got it to number one. And then just to prove it wasn't a freak, I did it with the next book as well. Now, it was, it was, it was my marketing skills, but it was Lorna's story and Lorna, the database we had built of people who wanted to follow Lorna and all of that. But uh, it was fun um, to be able to, to apply those skills from one industry into another. So mm. it was, it was, a, it was, it was entertaining. Yeah, I'll bet. And also, because you were still probably thinking, "What the hell am I doing <laughs> in this in this or gig?" At, at times, and I mean, and of course, the the fascinating thing with with something like that is, do you actually tell people what you're doing? And at the very beginning, for the first couple of years, I told nobody what I was doing. Then, as as her first book was coming out, I actually had to tell people what I was what I was doing and I learned there were some people who were going to diss you and you just let it be that's their stuff not your stuff but what was fascinating was on a subject like that was you couldn't predict what way people would go and mm. the most unlikely people would come and say to me can I go and talk to her um or would be asking all kinds of in-depth questions and then there were some people who were just terrified of her um so it was it was very interesting and i learned that you couldn't judge from the exterior what people's internal beliefs were including your own parents from the story you told me about it including 
including my own parents, because um, we shot videos in my parents' lovely garden at, at one stage. And Lorna gave me these beautiful descriptions of the angels she saw around my parents, very, very moving uh, and beautiful. And I wrote it out as I would have done her other material, and I gave it to uh, to my parents. And uh, my mother has it hanging, uh, had it, she's no longer with us, but she she had it hanging in her bedroom. And I was very touched by that. Um, and they would have been very Catholic. Um, and of course, that being said, we did have a lot of uh, interaction with um, people of different religions. And as you say, some of the most interesting work we did was in America on bringing Sunni and Shia Muslim leaders together. Mm. Um, which was fascinating. Mm. Uh, she said it was something that was very important to be done in the world. Um, and we got buy-in from some very senior people. Um, and uh, we even got in speaking to the uh, the Clinton Global Foundation about getting involved. Uh, we had a very amusing meeting where I came out and said, we... We managed to talk about the whole project, talk about everything, but not mention angels once. <laughs> talk about playing to people's comfort uh, comfort zones. But probably the most interesting work was where Betty Williams, who had won the Nobel Peace Prize for um, the work she had done with the peace women in Ireland, bringing, North, bringing Protestants and Catholics together. Uh, and she won the Nobel Peace Prize jointly in 1976. And she came to the States with us to talk about the Northern Irish experience to, to these, mm. these people. And that was really interesting. And then one morning, Lorna woke up and she said, I'm being told it's too late. I'm told that boat has, has, has sailed. Oh, wow. And after that, a lot of sort of Syrian things, a lot of the, 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 the problems in the world escalated. So it was, mm. it was very sad in some ways, mm. but it was fascinating and fascinating to see who we could get to listen Wow, that's such an interesting route into international peace process through a woman who writes about angels she sees, because that is sort of kind of uncomfortable. With somebody with a political science and advocacy and lobbying background, I'm just like... And I have a political science background too, so yes, yeah. I agree. I can't show up with this woman in parliament. It's embarrassing. Sorry, Lorna. Yeah, yeah, sort of like, oh my gosh, people are going to question my legitimacy. <laughs> oh, Wow. But you just seven years spent doing that and just rolling with the synchronicity and the discomfort of kind of owning it. I love that. And what came of it? And what came of it? I know also you've done some very uncomfortable things. You talked about hiking the Camino de Santiago. Hmm. And we haven't kind of plunged into that. When did that happen? That happened in 2005. So just after I'd come back from Fintorn, about a year or two after I'd left, I'd come back from Fintorn. And it's interesting, I was thinking about this interview in advance, and I was going, discomfort in the Camino. Mm. I had the most joyful Camino. I did not get one blister. No way. How is that possible? Well, I don't know. I don't know, <laughs> but and, and it's not because I'm a natural walker. And when I was thinking about discomfort, I thought, well, I had anticipatory discomfort, 
So I expected discomfort in in advance. So I worked with a personal trainer to try and get me strong enough because I'm really not a natural walker. Uh, Mm. I was also helped by a very wonderful cousin of mine, Helen, who came with me for the first week, which allowed supported me in the first week. And then I took off on my on my own. And I have to say it was an absolutely glorious experience. Mm. How long were you out on the trail? Because for those who don't know the Camino de Santiago, it runs from the northwest of Spain all the way to, well, Italy, if you want to follow it all the way to Rome. But it's a pilgrimage trail, really, really old, you know, centuries old pilgrimage trail. And you can go across the top of Spain, bit of France into Italy. So how many weeks did you spend? How far did you get? So... So basically, I walked the 800 kilometers that go from from the French. You, you start in a place mm. called Saint-Jean-de-Pied-de-Port, and then you end up in, in Santiago. Um, and I have to admit to cheating twice because I really never felt it was a spiritual practice to walk into a city through the industrial Mm. busy streets with the so there's a couple of very as you go into Burgos in and out of Burgos and in and out of Leon I have to admit I used um, a taxi or a bus but only for short distances and it was purely because I felt there was nothing spiritual in big lorries going beside you Um, but other than that other than that I walked and of course you stay in hostels as you go along the the way and and I carried my uh, backpack which was wonderful because it gave you complete freedom Mm. so and you meet such amazing people along the way and it is the most heartfelt space and it's funny the things that change as you go so like I always thought reaching Santiago was like the goal but I had this um, very interesting experience where I met a, a South African woman on the Camino who um had had cancer and she started mm. to get sick before we got to Leon. And I brought her to the hospital in Leon and the doctor, because I spoke Spanish and she didn't, uh, the doctors there said, you know, she needs to go home. Uh, we can't treat her. She absolutely needs to go home as soon as possible. And she was walking with her 17-year-old daughter and she said, no, I'm not going home because this is an opportunity to have with my daughter and Whatever happens health-wise, I want this opportunity. So she started to go by bus from place to place, and her daughter would would walk. And then I would, I, I and a couple of other people would try and meet her for a coffee during the day to help to make the day easier for her. And she really wanted to walk into Santiago. Wow. So we stopped, a group of us decided we would stop at 11 o'clock one morning, three kilometers from Santiago. So we stopped and we spent the rest of that day in a hostel where one of those ones where we could cook. So we had a wonderful lunch and we had a wonderful dinner together. But we could, if we'd gone up to the top of the building, we could have seen the cathedral in Santiago. We were that Mm. near, like we were three kilometers, but we waited so that the following morning we could accompany her into Mm. Santiago, divide up her rucksack and walk slowly with her at the pace she could walk uh, into Santiago. And that's the Camino for you. It wasn't about reaching the goal. It was about supporting others along along the way. And yeah, because 
through hiking is a special thing anyway. And I've, I've been hiking in the Basque country in the north of Spain and met people on the Camino, done little sections mm. of it. And it's, it's yeah, through hiking, especially solo, you're never alone. And there's a certain type of spirit you meet out there, I imagine. Yeah. Mm. And, there's, and there are just those wonderful conversations that happen. And one of the ones that touched me most was I was walking one day and I was walking with this French woman and in her 40s. And I don't know her name. I'm not sure if I ever knew her name. But as we walked along, she started to tell me about giving a baby up for adoption. Hmm. And she told me she told very few people and that, that her family didn't know. And we walked beside each other, bawling, crying. I've never cried as much. I've never laughed as much either, but I've never mm. cried as much as I cried in the Camino. And we walked beside each other, crying. There was, there was nothing that could be said mm. except to be there and to be a listener and to be a, and to be a support. Wow. Wow. And out there sort of freed of whether or not people are looking at you and how you're supposed to look and you were just their souls accompanying each other. One of the joys of the Camino is you never give your surname. You never tell people what you do. Uh, nobody knows how much money you've got. There's this, in fact, the only snobbishness that might exist on the Camino is how many, how many kilometers did you do yesterday or where did you start? They are the only, so the elite people are the people who walk out of their, uh, their own home, whether it's in Germany or Switzerland, and they walk all the way to Santiago. The next ones are the ones who start in San Juan de Pied de Port. So there is that sort of hierarchy, <laughs> but there is nothing to do with what you do in real life or what fancy clothes you have or anything like that. Mm. That story, particularly about the woman who you waited for and walked into Santiago together is a really good segue actually into the big conversation that I've been wanting to have, which is that big conversation a lot of people don't want to have about death and dying and mm. grief. So you became chair of the Irish Hospice Foundation in December of 2019, right? And then two weeks later, you lost your 91-year-old beloved mother, Margaret, very unexpectedly. So it was sort of pre-COVID lockdown. But, I mean, you just never see it coming unless there's ill health for a long time. And I guess 91 is a pretty good age, good mm. for Margaret. But I read, and I will post in the show notes, your blog about that, about how the timing of becoming chair and your mother's death were just so unexpectedly... I don't know. It gave it a lot of depth, didn't it? That start as it chair. Did. It did. But I think it had started even before that because um, when I was first approached and would ask, would I become chair? My response was, no way, you've got the wrong person and I'm not right and all of, and all of that. And I was persuaded to consider it. Um, while I was considering it, I went to an Irish Hospice Foundation event where Catherine Mannix was speaking. Now, for those of you who don't know, Catherine Mannix is she's Scottish, I think. She's certainly British. She is a, a hospice doctor who says she has been by, by more than 5,000 bedsides as people have died. So wow. she is really experienced. But she has written this amazing book called With the End in Mind. And it's how to live and die well. And she was speaking at this 
event for the Irish Hospice Foundation. And she spoke about how she had a man in her in his 80s uh, come in very seriously ill into intensive into accident and emergency and it was clear he was not going to make it and his son who was there in his late 50s early 60s was was there and she was asked you know did she know what her father wanted in terms of resuscitation in terms of all of that and he kept saying no no we never talked about those issues and then his brothers came in and they were all there saying, oh, no, we never talked about that because when dad brought it up, we would say, oh, no, stop being maudling. And they had this situation where they didn't actually know what his wishes were. And mm-hmm. Catherine said something that day and she said, we cannot keep doing this one conversation at a time. We have got to crack this issue about conversations about death. And... I went away going, oh, my God, I haven't had that conversation with my parents. Mm. So I'll be honest, I felt like, you know, this thing about having conversations with teenagers about sex, (laughs) same sort of uh, fear, visceral fear. How can I bring this up with my with my parents? So I had for various reasons, I was given the flowers from the conference. So I brought those down and I was able to say, these flowers have come from this conference. And let me tell you about some of what was being discussed. And one of the things that was suggested was that you ask people about what are their fears about death. So I, my parents had no problems talking about, about death. Mm. When I asked, asked them, had they any fears? My father said, my fear is that is what do I what happens if I wake up some morning and your mother is dead in the bed beside me? Now she says this in front of my mother, uh, and I went. You ring you ring myself for one of my brothers and sisters, and then I went. That's a lousy answer to a man who is you know full control of his faculties, you know, experienced mm. lawyer, etc. So I said I will come back to you. And for those of you who want to know, in Ireland you ring the GP because if you ring the ambulance. The body goes into the hospital system and you mm. end up with a whole load of extra complexity that you don't actually want. Um, but we we continued discussing a bit more about things. And he went mm, and we talked about um, resuscitation and what they wanted in relation to that. And a month after that, my father took himself off one day, aged 89 at the time, took himself off one morning on his own into the undertakers and he gave them all the all his wishes for my uh, my mother and his funerals the day after my mother was taken into hospital and she was dead within uh, within a month and uh a friend of mine in Ireland who's quite spiritual, she said, of course, that was the foreshadow of death and your father was listening. And it's a very interesting phrase. And funny, when I was reading Catherine Mannix again, preparing for this interview, I came across her using the phrase. Mm-hmm. I I actually think there is a foreshadow. I, I firmly believe there's a grace that's given to people as mm-hmm as they come towards the end of their life, a grace to be able to accept it. Because I can't, I do believe in a God and I can't believe in a God who is, who is, who is as cruel as 
make this horrible experience. And mm. Catherine Mannix, who is well worth reading or listening, she does a lot of interviews and, and podcasts about death and what the process of death is. Um, and she would say, and she talks her patients through, this is what it will be like. And that gives people enormous comfort and it takes away a lot of the fears that people have. Mm. So why is it that, because we are not good at talking about death in sort of Western societies, why don't we have those conversations? What are we afraid of? I think if you go back in time, we probably did. Um, and if you take like Ireland, um, like we would have had a very strong wake culture. And if you go back mm -hmm. to the 1950s, most people would have died at home um, and people would have seen, uh, you know, their granny dead or would have seen relatives uh, dead. So it wasn't as sanitized. Um, now there's lots of good things about the way we do death now in relation to pain control and things like that. So I'm not, yeah. I'm not dissing it, but I do yeah. think that sometimes it has been, it has been sanitized too much. It is a fact of life. We are all going to die. Um, and therefore, like one of the things we do in the Irish Hospice Foundation is trying to encourage conversations. So we have a really good um, free resource. It's on it's on the Irish Hospice Foundation uh, website, and we might put it into your uh, mm. your notes, Betsy. Called Think Ahead, okay. and it's a really good form that has been designed with lawyers and with medical experts, and it's all about thinking about what it is you want and who do you need to talk to um, in uh, in advance, and even the act of thinking about it changes some changes some things because lots of people are reluctant to have the, the conversation. One of the fascinating things I've discovered is uh, since I've become chair of the Irish Hospice Foundation is that people now feel they have, they have permission to talk to me about death. Mm. I, in um, when I took over, for example, on, on, on one board recently, I ended up with three different board directors coming and talking to me about deaths they'd encountered in the um, in the previous uh, you know couple of years. Um, wow. Information they would never have given to me because I was there as a businesswoman, but by virtue of having that label. And I remember one of the members of the uh, the amazing staff who work in the Irish Hospice Foundation saying, "Oh, you'd be amazed how much time we spend out of work talking." about death because wow. people know you as a safe pair of hands. So I will get phone calls from people saying, um, my, uh, my mother is terminally ill. What do I do? How do I handle this, this issue? How do we handle that? Um, and while I can't always answer the questions myself, I can provide the information. Um, and that's really what we what we try to do in the Irish Hospice Foundation, make sure that people have access to the information. So if you mm. want to die at home, how, how do you go about that? What are the supports you need? Um, all of those mm. sort of those sort of things. It's interesting because it makes me really have to admit that it's a conversation I've been uncomfortable having. For example, I don't have a will and I've thought about it for years and just haven't ever done it because for me, it feels like I'm paving the way to die. 
And, you know, sort of my family lives in another country. And my mother often is like, what, what would you do? What would you want us to do if anything happened to you? And I just don't want to think about it. And I'm not someone who's afraid of death. So, you know, I've, I've said lately to friends, if I were to die tomorrow, I'd be totally fine with that. But I yet, I don't want to plan for it because there's something still really uncomfortable in that for me. And I'm not even sure why. Well, two things about that. Catherine Mannix says that talking about death doesn't make you die no more than talking about sex makes you pregnant. So, <laughs> you know, we can, we can take away that fear uh, of, of talking about death. Um, and the second thing is, it's not about you. It's about the people you leave behind. Mm. And, you know, we come across so many cases where... Um, Either, either will hasn't been made or people are left, families are left with siblings fighting, for example, about what it is that mum would have wanted. And they mm-hmm. all have their own interpretation of it. And those rows are happening in a, in a situation that's very emotionally charged. I have to say, I was eternally grateful to my father for having done the um, done what he did because my mother died three days before Christmas and we had her funeral on Christmas Eve and it was only possible because there was absolute clarity about what was wanted. We literally had a situation where she died at 4.30 and it went into the newspaper at six o'clock because if it didn't go into the newspaper, my mother had to die in the Irish Times she wouldn't have been dead. She wouldn't have recognized herself as being dead if she hadn't died in the Irish Times. So we needed to make meet that deadline. Um, and it happened because that thinking had been done. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point about it's not about you, really. Planning for death is not so much about you. Which brings us into an interesting conversation that we, I know we both want to handle gently, and that is sort of the conversations being had in a lot of countries for a long time now, but about assisted dying and that that idea that maybe it is dignified to allow people to choose when and how they die when they're in certain conditions. And I know that, you know, the Irish Hospice Foundation doesn't take a stance on this and you don't either personally. It's just about facilitating a conversation in which people can really think this through. And I, I know you were talking about... Um, the Dutch example of how you'd had a conversation with a, a Dutch gentleman who mm. had been through this with his wife. So I guess where do we, yeah. what do we need to think about, about how we die, how we choose to die, what options we allow others to have in mm. that mm. experience of dying? Like assisted dying is a really um, tricky question. I mean, mm. it's one that's, that's full of discomfort. Um we know that in Holland today, seven people will choose to end their own lives through medical assistance. Mm. And they will do it for lots of different reasons. And I have to say, my heart goes out to all of them and to all their loved ones, um, even thinking about, about it. Um, the research would say there are three big reasons. One is fear of pain, all very legitimate reasons. One is fear mm. of pain. One is um, fear of uh, of loss of life quality. 
And the third is becoming a burden. Hmm. So those are three of the big reasons. Um, and what we need to do as a society is make sure that we address those issues to the best way possible. So here in Ireland, for example, there are some parts of the country where palliative care um, and support at end of life isn't as good as it should be. Mm. Uh, we have legislation in relation to supporting carers, um, but it hasn't been been um, activated. So there are things that, that we as a society can do to make sure that um, the reasons are diminished. Now, that does not mean that for some people there may not be reasons. And that's where the second thing I think I would say is comes in. There has to be a really good conversation, a really mm. in-depth conversation about what this means, about how do we protect vulnerable people, whether they are um, people who feel, who feel oh, they are becoming a burden and therefore mm. decide to do it, or... Um, Issues like slippery slopes, which we know come up as an issue about, you know, when is a life worth less? Yeah. Um, so here in Ireland, we haven't had that conversation yet. There has been uh, some talk about it and there has been a private member's bill. But that really good in-depth conversation has not has not happened and it needs to be informed. And that's why, for example, as you were saying, I was speaking with a, a Dutch man who I came across on a, on a workshop I was doing who uh, agreed to talk to me about his experience. And he was, um, his wife uh, got a very aggressive form of cancer. And four weeks after her diagnosis, she um, ended her life with medical assistance. And we were discussing it. And I mean, I have to say, we both just cried our way through the, through the call. But uh. All you can do, it was my job, if I'm going to be part of an organization i have to listen to these things this is important and therefore and mm. there is nobody in there's very few people in ireland with the experience so you reach out and you have the conversations yeah. because it's the only way as a responsible person you can actually um engage and you have to bring your emotions and your own personal experience in um so um oh <sighs> Um, you name the day that you are going to die. Yeah. Just let that yeah. drop for a moment. Wow. Yeah. That's beyond imagining really. Yeah. How would you live if you had to name or you chose to name the day you were going to die? That's an uncomfortable thought, but it's also an interesting one to ponder. Yeah. So I, I mean, here in Ireland, we are starting to have the debate. We as I say, in the Irish Hospice Foundation, do not have a perspective. But we do know we need to address the reasons to mm -hmm. the very greatest extent we can. And there needs to be a good debate, a really proper debate, informed, drawing on the experience in other countries. And perhaps that's via a citizens' assembly, which have worked very well here in Ireland. Mm. Yeah, because it is, I mean, if we need to have conversations about death and dying and grief, let's talk about grief next. It's all about having a robust conversation and not shutting down either side of an argument. And it happens to be about assisted dying. But these conversations are important about the way we live, the way we die, what we allow people to do with their lives and their freedoms and what freedom means to us and what quality of life means to us. And there are so many 
really important conversations within that one big conversation about, you know, should people be allowed to choose the day they die with medical assistance? So, yeah, I think I'd like to just move us on because that is definitely I'd like to leave that there as an uncomfortable topic for people to ponder. But another one is grief. And I think that that is something that is so often repressed in our sort of stiff upper lip society or not something people acknowledge that they're dealing with or they think that it needs to be cured quickly. But grief is a very necessary and even beautiful process of of loss and of having had something. And I think this can relate to a lot of things, not just death, but yeah, because I know that I know that part of the Irish Hospice Foundation's position is that they stand behind people not fearing grief or thinking that it can be cured quickly. So, can we just unpack mm. grief a bit from your perspective? Some of the research that fascinates me is, and it's around the fear of death, and there's a fear of people who have been bereaved. Um, so this we found particularly younger people are feel inadequate around what to say to somebody who has been bereaved. Mm. And that, and far too often people feel they've said sorry, they're sorry once, and that's it. But actually, people who have been bereaved need to be able to talk, and they need somebody to listen to them. And it's a bit like, I mean, that was pure grief, that French girl on the Camino. That was pure grief. And there was nothing I could say that was going to make it better. And for somebody like me who is a problem solver, that's a discomforting place to be. Mm. But actually, in grief, that is very often where we need to be. We just need to stay with somebody. And we need to forget about this what happens if I say the wrong thing? Mm. Now, there's a few things that we prefer you didn't say, like, oh, it's all right, you'll, uh, you know, you'll get, uh, you know, it'll pass. And, uh, you know, oh, well, that was that was three months ago. Why are you still upset? Or, yeah. you know, there's things like that 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 you don't, you shouldn't be saying. But just being there and listening and being present. And I always think of that word compassion, which basically means with somebody in their in their pain or their suffering. Mm. And that's what it's about. And it's not comfortable. Um, but, you know, it's not nearly as uncomfortable as we think it is. Just listening and being with someone. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a certain amount of presence and real consciousness to do that. Because yeah. so often when we're uncomfortable, we talk or we we try to solve something mm. or we move around. Yeah, I think that's necessary mm. in so many areas of life, not just being with someone who's bereaved. And the other the other thing is, I mean, while we run with the Royal College of Surgeons, the the, the masters, the postgraduate qualifications in in bereavement. Uh, but we would be really strong in saying 90 percent, 90 to 95 percent of people will get through grief with friends and family supporting them. So we mustn't pathologize grief and say, oh, you know, you need to go and speak to a grief counsellor and all of that. That being said, we do know that COVID has been really tough for people who have been bereaved. 
really, really tough. So here in Ireland, where funerals are a really important source of support, we've had a situation where you could have 10 people at a funeral. Now, for most Irish families, 10 people, like, it's it, it, it all it's it's savage actually now we're fortunately mm. we're back to i think we're at 25 at, at the moment and please god we will never go back to to 10 but uh we started a bereavement support line over that period where we had um trained volunteers at the end of a telephone just giving that extra support but mm. the message i'd love to get out there is you know people People just need not to be afraid of it and they need to have the conversations and we need to teach our children how to have those conversations and we need to encourage people and we need to model it ourselves. Mm. Yeah, comfort with death and life and grief and all of these things. Yeah. So what, I mean, you are a woman who has experienced a lot of discomfort and is not... You're a pro at discomfort. <laughs> I'm glad you think so. I, I, I'm, this is the impression I have. But what keeps you uncomfortable and pushing the edges of your own comfort zone and, and growing? Curiosity. Curiosity and a belief that we can all expand. Mm. And um, I, Tara Moore, who wrote that wonderful book on uh, on playing big, says that Fear cannot coexist with curiosity, according to neuroscience. And I just get enormous comfort out of that. So, you know, I had the choice to be fearful about doing uh, our podcast or to be curious about what you'd ask and where it would where it would go. So I set the intention of being of being curious uh, about it. And that has and that has helped me. So I. I think we all have so much potential, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I meet people all the time, um, you know, people I mentor, people I meet in the street, people I meet everywhere who have enormous potential. And one of my joys is helping people to expand into that into that potential, whether they're a business or they're an author or they're just somebody who wants to do something more with their life. Um, and I think mm. that helps me to um, keep with my discomfort. I don't always live up to it, though, you know. But you can try. Living with intention. I love that quote. Fear cannot coexist with curiosity. What a beautiful thing to take away. I think that's definitely going to make it onto my Instagram feed (laughs) in talking about this episode. Well, any final thoughts to leave with our listeners here on anything? Life, death, grief, just being curious. Let me tell you the question that has been sitting, two questions have been sitting with me through throughout COVID. One is the, and they're linked. One is we've got to take, can we imagine, reimagine ourselves out of this? I would hate to think that we've been through this awful year and not made something positive out of it in the sense of us, having a more intentional society, whether it's us as individuals or actually as a society. So what have we what have we learned that's important to us? What are the things we'd be happy to leave behind about the mm-hmm. old normal? What I what I am afraid of is that we automatically go back into the things we were doing before, which are not so great. And the second question which is linked to it is that amazing book by by Roman Kransky about um, the good ancestor. Mm. 
Mm. And the question is, are you being a good ancestor? And I have to say, that's a question that could keep me awake at night because he has an exercise where he says, think about a young person in your life and imagine them at their 90th birthday party. And they are talking about you and the role you played in the society that has been left behind. And so I did it with my godson, Ariel, who will be uh, 90 just at the turn of the of the century and um i realized he's not going to be saying very good things about the society we left behind unless we actually get our act together and we've a lot to get our act together on oh wow that is a mic drop moment i can't add to that what a question to leave people with well two questions what do you not need or want to go back to what has covid allowed you to stop letting be normal? And then what kind of ancestor are you being right now? Oof, can't add to that, Jane. This has been a delightful, interesting, highly uncomfortable interview for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much for your time. I was looking forward to this chat and you certainly did not disappoint. Ladies and gentlemen, Jane Callanan, you will definitely be coming back because I think we have a lot more stories to unpack in future because you've lived a little, Jean. Mm. So thank you for your time today. Actually, thank you for being such a joy to talk to. It's been fascinating. And my curiosity, uh, curiosity was certainly the right way to approach it. (laughs) I'm glad I could contribute to your curiosity. (laughs) Thank you, Jean. Thank you to my team who helped me produce this podcast, to my brilliant editor, Dimitar Tsvetkov, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, and to Luis Amaro for the original artwork. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help me reach new listeners by leaving me a five-star and written review on Apple Podcasts, following me on Spotify, or anywhere else you love to listen to podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at thebetsyreed. That's B-E-T-S-Y-R-E-E-D. If you're interested in bonus episodes and guided meditations I record regularly, head over to patreon.com and become a supporter. For the price of a coffee each month, you get access to a community. So there's really only one thing left to say. Thank you for spending time with me. Stay uncomfortable.